0: day and the hour of the end, and this revelation he gave to John. We have learned the dating, that revelation was given to John and written down during the reign of Nero, and we have learned the theme. The revelation of Jesus Christ tells of the events that were soon going to happen, that they were the last days of the old covenant a system of righteousness that had been twisted and corrupted by men, Jesus the Messiah, the ruler of the kings of the earth, was coming in judgment upon apostate Israel. These are the three things that we have thus learned. Not only did we see these three things in verses 1 through 8, but it was also giving you snapshots of how they are reflected throughout the whole book of Revelation, And additionally, I showed you in Scripture, Old and New Testaments, that they teach the same three things. And I say that because what I am not doing is taking a small piece of the Bible and I am stretching it to fit something I like, some system I prefer. What I'm trying to do is show you the context of the Bible and that the context of the Bible is teaching these three elements. And so whenever possible, what I am trying to do is interpret the Bible with the Bible, which I think is how we must read this book. Now, it is not easy to do this, not for any of us. It is not easy to collect all of the pieces and and see how they fit together. It is a mighty challenge, which is one reason why Revelation stirs such controversy and why there are so many different interpretations of it. And, And that's okay, to a degree, that's okay. But shouldn't it be characteristic of a God who transcends our understanding, that even his revelations would call men up to think with all of their might? And even if we are able to reach this pinnacle of human understanding, I think we would realize that we're merely standing upon a bluff, gazing out upon a vast, deep ocean, Today it's likely that we will see many things not seen before, that we will see things not seen before. And by the end of this message, you will realize that there is an ocean stretching beyond our comprehension. And if you are like me, then it will, then it will leave you in the only place to land, in doxology, as it was with Paul Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's where we want to land. The end of this message today. But know that these sacred heights that we tread today, they are meant for our understanding. God has given us revelation so we can understand it. He has not given it to confuse us. He has not given it so that it can remain out of our reach. We can know, and we can understand what this book says, what it is teaching. and with our minds filled with the Holy Spirit, we will. For the Spirit gives us the mind of Christ, who has known the mind of God, those that the Holy Spirit has shown it to. Today, the visions of Revelation begin. And Today we are going to see, with these visions, how this book works. We begin to understand how to unlock the mysteries here. So how does the Bible, or how does biblical symbolism work? That's one question we're going to answer. How does biblical symbolism work? And then what is the meaning of this first vision in Revelation 1? And then, of course, we want to land in doxology and worship this God who is far greater than we can comprehend. So let's read this passage. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Follow along with me. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet though dead, as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, the seven churches. Oh, Father, what words. What a picture of majesty and of glory. So ferocious that John falls down like he was dead. Strike our hearts with awe this morning as we behold these things. Teach us and instruct us. Give us the mind of your spirit. we need you this morning to work and then we trust that you will in Christ's name i pray amen to those in the seven churches john is their brother and he is their partner which means that he's on the same level as them he's not above them and that he is sharing in the same experiences with them and and what are the experiences that he's sharing in with them, he tells us, He lists three experiences that they are presently sharing in: tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance. Christ does not remove his people from tribulation, but instead he takes them through the fires to refine their faith. And did not First Peter teach us that? He takes them through the tribulation to refine their faith as they patiently endure that difficulty. And this king, this Christ, he has brought the kingdom and yet is not fully consummated. And so we patiently await the day until it is fully consummated. It is true in John's day. It is true in our day. And yet we cannot forget the context in which John is writing. In one hand, Jesus brought the kingdom. In the other hand, He brought the tribulation. Just as Jesus announced when he said that the words of Isaiah were fulfilled in Luke chapter 4, he quoted Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor And the day of vengeance of our God. Kingdom in one hand, tribulation in the other. Though we Christians through the ages are partakers in both kingdom and tribulation, revelation was sent to a people experiencing the beginning of the birth pains. The thunderheads of the great tribulation were gathering on the horizon, which is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. The day of vengeance was coming on the clouds. And so the first readers of Revelation needed a supernatural measure of patient endurance. And those present experiences of tribulation, of kingdom, of patient endurance, they are all linked together by one thing Jesus Christ. He is the seed from which the kingdom is now growing. He is the one who comes on the clouds bringing judgment, and he generously grants his saints this patient endurance. And so, yes, it is the testimony of Jesus Christ that changes the course of history, that ends one age and ushers in a new one. And this testimony of Jesus Christ, John receives it, this revelation, while he is on the Isle of Patmos. Look at this in verses uh, 9 and 10. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So no matter the human reasons that took John to Patmos, God's purpose was to have John in that desolate place to receive the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what we just read. That's the purpose that he is there for. The phrasing, the phrasing, the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ is the exact same phrasing that we read in verse 2 of chapter 1. The testimony of Jesus Christ stated here in verse 9, is now completely about Christ's revelation, what he is speaking to John on Patmos. It is Jesus showing the things that must soon take place. Now, there are different ideas about what John means regarding the Lord's Day. To be honest, that's a discussion for another time. It really doesn't have bearing on, on our study today. But what is important is that John uses almost like a technical prophetic phrase right here. I was in the Spirit, he says. In the Old Testament, langu- that's language that signals to the reader that this author received a revelation from the Almighty, that he had been admitted into the heavenly courtroom. And this phrasing, in the Spirit, or with the Spirit or by the Spirit, validates that this is a prophetic a prophetic utterance and it signals us, the readers, to listen. God is speaking. A few examples from the Old Testament. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. And that's the signal. What's about to be said is God. Ezekiel 2:2, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. That's the signal. In the Spirit. By the Spirit. And so, what we read after John writes, I was in the Spirit, should be taken by us as authoritative, as prophetic, as divine revelation. And let it remind us again that we are reading a prophetic, apocalyptic book. With prophetic apocalyptic literature comes these these phrases that signal different things. They are meant to draw our attention to old things, things spoken of in the Old Testament, things spoken of by the prophets, things spoken of by God. And John is using this technical prophetic phrasing to signal that. He's a prophet, God is speaking, listen. And so when in the Spirit, when John is in the Spirit, something amazing happens. And something terrifying happens. Verse 10 again. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So picture it. Almost put yourself there. John's in prayer. Maybe he's praying with his eyes open. He's in this direction, focused in this direction. And then from behind him comes a mighty voice. A voice like a trumpet. And suddenly, John is caught up in the Spirit. You should not be thinking of a musical instrument right there. You should think of a terrifying sound. One that would make you tremble to the core. One that would make you think that you are about to die. That's the effect that it had on the Israelites at Mount Sinai. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, "'You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die.'" When I think of a sound of a trumpet like that, this is what I think of. that I could feel the stage rumbling. But through this overpowering trumpet blast, John hears a voice. Just as Moses heard a voice at Sinai, and this voice tells him, write, in verse 11, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. These seven churches, as you can see on this map, they are all located in modern-day Turkey, and the names of the churches are listed in a clockwise order, starting with Ephesus. So John hears that terrifying voice from behind him, speaking instructions to him to write, to write to these churches, and I imagine that in terror, he turns and he sees That is going to be a tool we see employed in Revelation again and again. John hears, and then he sees. He hears one thing, he sees another thing. But they are not different things. They are the same thing, which is what's happening here in chapter 1. John hears about seven churches. He sees one like a son of man and candlesticks. And stars. So this is the first instance in Revelation of hearing, then seeing. And it is going to teach us how Revelation works, how symbolism works. We'll get into more on this later. So John heard that mess right to the seven churches. He turns, and what does he see? Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with the long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the voice of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The first thing that John saw were seven golden lampstands It's meant, that is meant to remind you of the seven spirits who are before the throne, spoken of in verse 4. Those seven spirits are symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Inside the temple in Jerusalem was a golden lampstand with seven arms and seven flames on top of those arms. This lampstand represented, was a physical representation of a spiritual reality, the Holy, the Holy Spirit. And I spoke of those things in last week's sermon. But in John's vision, he does not see those seven candlesticks together, but they're separate. And in the midst of them is one like a son of man. That is a direct Reference to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. One like a son of man is God who has become man, the son of God. Daniel's vision is of Jesus' coronation ceremony which occurred after he ascended into heaven. Jesus left the earth in the clouds And he was presented before the Ancient of Days in heaven in the clouds. And that was the moment, the official moment that Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That was the moment that Jesus was given the crown, now the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. That was the moment at the ascension. And that imagery from Daniel is woven into the fabric of revelation. And John goes on to describe what he sees of this one like a son of man with some descriptive language that's employed elsewhere in Daniel, but every, every descriptive phrase that he uses comes from Old Testament prophecy, is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Every phrase. And they all have their their own significance, in their own right, each descriptive phrasing. Some of these phrases we will see again in Revelation. But we are not going to explore the meaning of each description today because that would diminish what John is really trying to communicate. He's trying to communicate all this together. This majesty, this otherworldly appearance, this terror upon seeing one like a son of man. Imagine seeing all of this at once. But I will note this one detail, this one critical detail about his description. In the right hand of this glorious person are seven stars. Oh, the depth of that image. Let's read it again. I saw seven golden lampstands. It is as if every part of this being is on fire, but he is not consumed. He is brilliant. He is blinding. It's like looking into the blazing noonday sun. His voice is deafening, like Niagara. And his glory absolutely overwhelms the senses of John so that he falls down like he is dead. For Jesus is the manifest glory of God. The incarnate glory of God. That is what we are seeing here. All the fullness of deity dwelling in this one man, one like a son of man. And just seeing it, just seeing it for a moment is enough to drop you on the ground like you are dead. But with the same hand that held those seven stars, the king touches the shoulder of John. It's completely natural for John to be terrified by what he hears and what he sees, and he is told not to fear. Why should John not fear? Well, this one, like a son of man, tells him, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This one, like a son of man, calls himself the first and the last. Jesus is declaring himself to be God. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Jesus is the first and the last. The living one. Another title for God. He died, and behold, he lives forevermore. As Paul writes, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death has no dominion over him. And since death does not have dominion over Christ, but Christ overcame death, that means Jesus has dominion over death. Or he holds the keys to death and Hades. In other words... Jesus is the Lord of life, and he is the Lord of death. And as the first and the last, he reigns over all eternity, knowing all things from beginning to end. So this one, terrible in appearance, glorious in majesty, can be trusted entirely. He is the rock, and this is why John need not fear. Jesus holds John's life in his hands just as he held those seven stars and he puts his right hand, his right hand upon John. Though his appearance be awesome and terrible, that hand is still scarred. He loves John deeply and he gave his life for him and he will not let death separate him from John. Not only did Jesus conquer his own death, he conquered John's death also. And what is true for John as true for every one of us today all those that Christ's love that Christ loves it is true for we need not fear jesus our lord holds the keys to death and hades as surely as he lives so also will we live for the death he died he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives to god so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Praise God. And Jesus tells John again to write. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. That phrasing of verse 19 is set in parallel with the description Of God, in verse 4. Of him who is and who was and who is to come. And John must write what he has seen, past. He must write the things that are present. And he must write the things that are to take place after this, future. Says the God who is and who was and who is to come. Notice the time stamp regarding the future. The things that are to take place after this. John is not writing about the things that will take place way in the distant future. He's writing about the things that are about to happen right after this. The this being the revelation that he's receiving right now. Like the first sentence of this book says, John is writing about the things that must soon take place. For in like verse 3, that time is near. And after telling John to write, Jesus unveils a mystery. What we read next, what we read next is like a key. And it unlocks the book of Revelation. And I am not overstating it. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In the Bible, the word mystery does not carry a sense of a puzzle or a riddle. As if like a detective, you can follow a series of clues and arrive at the answer. That's not how mystery works. No mystery, no biblical mystery, is able to be understood without revelation. Biblically, a mystery is a hidden truth that needs divine revelation to understand. So an example of this is when Paul uses the word mystery in the exact same way when he's talking about Jews and Gentiles together participating in the promises of God. Where he writes, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. So all of our understanding and searching and detective work can never get us to the answer of the mystery without God's revelation. Again, a mystery is a hidden truth. And to know the truth, you need divine revelation. So based on that definition, Jesus is not telling John, here is a symbol, here is its meaning. That would be like saying, here's the clue, here's the answer. It would be like lampstand is code word for the church. That's not what is happening. What Jesus is saying is that these two, these two things correspond to one another. They are equally true. This is how symbolism works in Revelation, as it does all over the Bible. Verse 20 is not an explanation It is an equivalence. It's so critical. Verse 20 is not an explanation. It is an equivalence. And this goes back to what John heard and then he saw. He heard the names of the seven churches. He saw the lampstands and the stars and one like a son of man. The same usage of symbolism. It's going to happen again in Revelation many times with 144,000, with the New Jerusalem, and a number of other things. These are not descriptions of people and cities. They are parts of a correlation. You need both parts to understand the mystery. You need both parts of the revelation to understand the mystery. And so when you take the parts, what is heard, what is seen, and you overlay them, that's when you see the revelation. Notice also the language of Jesus in verse 20. He does not say the, lep- the, the lampstands represent these churches, but that the lampstands are the seven churches. Again, language of correlation. And because John has already drawn our attention to the seven spirits of God, the greater truth, when the two parts come together, when we put together what has been heard and what is seen, we understand that the Holy Spirit lives within the church. That the Spirit is the flame which illumines the church. And Christ is in the midst of the seven lampstands. Meaning that the church, in all of its various locations, is centered on Christ. He is the unifying element to all people in all time within the church. He is like the central post to the to the great golden lampstand. And there's an image for this. He is like the central post. The flames like the Spirit. This correlation with the Spirit in the heart of the church and Christ at the center. Is this not what Jesus was talking about? When he said, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp And put it under a basket, but on a stand, like a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Lampstand is not a code word for church, the church is a lampstand, the light of the world. It was true of the seven churches that were listed, and it is true of Emmanuel. This here is a city set on a hill. This here is a burning lampstand. It cannot be hidden. And it will illumine this dark valley. And at this point, it might be easy to lose sight of the fact that there were, in reality, seven churches in Asia Minor to which John was instructed to write, real churches. They had issues, they had needs, they needed encouragement, for these tribulations were upon them because they needed to learn what it was to live in the kingdom, because they needed patient endurance. In chapters 2 and 3, we're going to see what it is that Jesus has to say to these seven churches directly and address their particular issues. They will be things that are applicable, though, to all churches at all times. We will learn much from what Christ says to these seven churches. But you might ask yourself, why these seven churches? Why are they so special? And really, when we ask that question, we stumble into a great expanse of the majesty and the wisdom and the dominion of our God. The question is answered as we consider the seven stars in the right hand of this one like a son of man. Jesus tells us that these seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The Greek word for angel It means messenger. It's translated also as messenger. So what I want to do now is show you, using the Bible to interpret the Bible, that Jesus is not talking about special guardian angels over different churches. Rather, there is copious biblical warrant to understand that Jesus is talking about the pastor's of these seven churches. In our Bible study two weeks ago on Wednesday night, we dove into the biblical imagery of sun, moon, and stars and how these heavenly bodies represent on earth, or symbolize on earth, kings and rulers and authorities and systems of government. And so here's one example from the Old Testament of stars symbolizing rulers. The kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. Kings and stars in direct parallel. So the seven stars in the hand of Christ symbolize the seven rulers of these seven churches. But not rulers... As we understand rulers in the kingdoms of men, these rulers are shepherds, elders, overseers, pastors. The seven stars are the seven pastors or seven messengers of the seven churches. So what John is writing down, this revelation, is going to be sent out to these seven churches, right? He writes it down, it is to be sent to them. And then when it arrives at their various churches, it will be read aloud to that congregation, which was the expectation we read about in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. So that's how this is supposed to work. It goes to those churches, and it's read aloud. Who's the one reading it aloud? It's the pastors. The messengers. So why is why this image? Why is it important for the pastors to be separated and then correlated to stars? Because if Christ holds these stars in his hand, Then these pastors are securely in the hand of the Almighty God. Will they not lead the church as Christ leads them? Will the church not likewise be secure as their pastors are secure? If Christ holds the pastor, is he not also holding the church? These pastors are figureheads of the seven churches. For Jesus said in John 10, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Though the stars are correlated to pastors securely held in the hand of Christ, they are figureheads of the church. They are representatives of the larger church, even the church universal. And now we are beginning to understand the mystery, the depth. There is a meaning deeper. And the first readers of Revelation would have seen it immediately. There's a constellation in the sky of seven stars. And it carried special significance in the ancient world in the first century. The Pleiades. The Pleiades is named numerous times in the Old Testament, twice by Job, once by Amos, and what we see in Revelation chapter one is an indirect reference to the Pleiades. In the spring, Pleiades is visible at dawn, but right now in the fall, we can see it at dusk in the western horizon. And many ancient cultures believed, or rather, they, they when they saw the morning Pleiades, it signaled to them. The beginning of the season of planting, as well as the start of the seafaring season. In Greek and Roman mythology, these stars were deified as seven sisters. Maya, which is sort of in the center there, is the greatest of these seven sisters. And we get the month of May from her name. There was a saying in the ancient world that went something like this. As on earth, so in heaven. And the ancient people constantly drew parallels between the positions and movements of the heavenly bodies with the events that were happening here on earth. So Rome was commonly called the city of seven hills, the city of seven mountains, in the same way that we call New York City the Big Apple. In the mind of the Roman, on earth, they were the seven mountains. In the sky, they were the seven sisters of the Pleiades. From its very foundation, it would seem that Rome identified itself with Pleiades. Here's a a picture of a number of different Roman coins. And on these coins, you can see seven stars. That center coin there, that inscription on it, it reads... To the divine Caesar. You see, the, the Caesars thought of themselves as gods. For if on earth they ruled Rome, the city of seven mountains, then in the skies it was as if they held in their hand the Pleiades. And if this God can control the growing season from which comes sustenance and wealth, And if this God can control the season of seafaring through which empires are expanded, then this God would be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, which is exactly what they thought of their Caesars. And this is why the Pleiades is employed to deify the Caesars. Do you see what Jesus is doing in Revelation chapter 1? Many people think that Revelation was written cryptically to hide its meaning from Rome, fearing that if Rome understood what Revelation was trying to say, then the possessors of that book would be killed for sedition. But to think that is to not understand the first century context. Any Roman bureaucrat would know exactly what is meant in Revelation 1. They would know that this one like a son of man, this Jesus, is claiming dominion over Rome, over all the earth. That Jesus was casting down Caesar, and taking his rightful place as the King of Kings. And instead of the Pleiades symbolizing Rome, the greatest empire that the world had yet known, Revelation is symbolically stating that there is a kingdom greater than Rome. It is the kingdom of the seven stars and the seven lampstands held by the true true ruler of the kings of the earth. It is the church. And if you have doubts about this correlation being drawn between the church and the Pleiades, then look again at this map. It is no coincidence that God told John to write to these seven churches because their locations bear a striking resemblance to the Pleiades. The seven churches, the seven pastors, they were real. For John partook of the tribulation of the kingdom and of patient endurance with them. And yet these seven churches stand as representatives of the church throughout history. Not in terms of of different phases of the church, but in terms of an ever-expanding kingdom inaugurated by Christ that shatters the empires of the world. For David wrote, "In the days of those kings, Rome, uh, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will be will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." What is that kingdom? But the church. So when we overlay the seven churches with the revelation that John sees, then this is the mystery revealed. We, as the church, are participants in Christ's ever-expanding kingdom. We are a people united by the glorious grace and the majesty of our great King. Christ holds us together in his righteous right hand, and nothing can separate us from his love. And it is through us that the Holy Spirit is casting heaven's light into the darkness of this world. Brothers and sisters, fear not. You are the lights of this world. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ, so go as lights of the world. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. This is for you. His voice has spoken. O Father, would we be faithful, brilliant lights, fearing nothing of this earth, pursuing you wholly, knowing that we are held fast in your hand, knowing that nothing, nothing can snatch us away from your love. And though we may endure tribulation in a kingdom not yet consummated, Father, grant us patient endurance. That while we wait, we would honor you with our time, with our days, with our breath. We praise you, great and glorious Father, creator of all things, the first and the last, the beginning of the end, who has told us and it is, who has given us promises we do not deserve, We praise you and we worship you by the blood of Christ and in his precious name. Amen.